0: James chapter 1 we'll be reading verses 12 through 25 Congregation listen carefully This is the very word of God Father in heaven, this is your word preserved through the ages by your good providence. And in your good providence, you have brought this word to our hearing this morning. And so we pray by the enlightening work of your spirit that you would do your bidding in our hearts. Give us attentive hearts and might your word go forth this morning, accomplishing that which you purpose. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. I'd like you to keep your Bibles open to James 1, if you would, and I want to point you to the very first verse of the letter, where there it tells us that it is written to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. This is a reference to the New Testament church using the language of Old Testament Israel. It is language used to recall times when Israel was dispersed throughout Gentile lands They had been removed from the promised land. They were away from home. But even in exile, they were still Israelites called to live as God had commanded. And James, mindful that the New Testament church and the Old Testament people of God are fundamentally the same community of believers, refers to the New Testament church in the language of a new Israel. We are those people... Who, who live in the new era of the Messiah. We are part of the new Israel, the Old Testament pointed to, those bound to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, through faith. And as such, we now bear a mystical connection to the risen Christ through the Spirit that brings us before the presence of God in a manner that did not exist before. No longer is access to God mediated through earthly types and shadows Our home is no longer the promised land of Canaan, the Old Testament picture of glory, but heaven itself. And as such, James refers to the church as the 12 tribes of the dispersion, not because we dwell in foreign lands outside of Israel, but because we dwell outside of heaven here in this fallen world. We are citizens of the city of God above, called to serve the Lord for a season in a place that is not our home. We are among the scattered. We are exiles. Now to further help with the context of our passage this morning, I want to very briefly consider the opening 12 verses of this epistle, which lay an important foundation to understanding this book Verses two and 12 wrap the book's introduction in the repeated themes of trial, endurance, and reward. In verse two, James opens with a command to consider the trials of this foreign world all joy because they test our faith and they produce endurance. Verse four then concludes the thought with the sheer hope that endurance will yield the perfect result. And the word perfect here is important in this passage. It is repeated twice in verse 4 in the Greek. And most of your translations reflect that repetition. However, sadly, in this case, the ESV does not. And so let me read verse 4 to you from the New American Standard so you can uh, hear this repetition. Verse 4 says, Let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, and complete, lacking in nothing. The word is used here to capture the idea of our future finished result of salvation. He's casting our eyes forward. James is looking to the future and he sees the fulfillment of God's purpose in redemption. He is directing our gaze to that future dwelling when we will enjoy the full possession of our heavenly hope in the realm of the perfect. And then verse 12 closes out this introductory section by echoing the threefold themes of trial, endurance, and reward by declaring we are counted blessed if we endure trials for we will receive the crown of life. The letter opens by fixing our eyes upon God's heavenly promise in the future. And that is to be the anchor of our hope. As the chapter continues into our text, we find now that verse 12 not only marks the end of the introduction, but is reemployed as the beginning of a new section. The declaration of blessedness through endurance in verse 12 is echoed in verse 25, forming a closing bracket. And this new section breaks very naturally into three subsections. Verses 12 through 15 speak of trials in the context of temptation. Verses 16 to 18 direct our attention to the perfect gifts God gives. And then verses 19 to 25 exhort us to fully immerse our life in God's perfect gifting and cause us blessed if we do. So that's, let's consider then this first subsection, verses 12 through 15. Here you will note in verses 12 through 15 that trials are not here considered as a source of joy, but a potential temptation to impugn the integrity and motives of God. James here confronts the accusation that trials come from God as an enticement to sin, thus making God the author of temptation. Five times in verses 13 through 14, you will find a form of the word tempt. Now, we need to understand the important difference the Bible makes between testing and tempting. Testing is an attempt to learn the nature or character of something. God tested Abraham by requesting he offer up his son. And Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham's faith in the resurrection was through this test put on display. God tested Israel in the wilderness. And in doing this, God exposed something of their own heart or character. But tempting, tempting is an enticement to sin. In the garden, Satan was tempting, not testing. He was not trying to expose something about Adam and Eve's character. But he was trying to lure them into catastrophic disobedience. Satan is the tempter. And with this in mind, verse 13 states emphatically that God does not tempt, nor can he be tempted. His nature is wholly inclined to his own perfections of holiness, righteousness, goodness, purity. It is impossible for God to draw his people into that which is entirely opposed to his own nature. In fact, far from tempting us to sin, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that when we are tempted, God provides a way of escape. This is a key grace to our endurance. If trials are met with faith, anchored in the word of God, with eyes fixed on the sure reward, then we are well equipped to endure. However, if we lose our vision for that end time horizon, If our hunger for Christ is obscured by our own pride and worldly appetites, then those same trials can disorient us and overtake us. Verses 14 and 15 outline the incubation process of sin. We do not sin because of something God does to place us in a compromised position Temptation first takes root in our hearts due to our own resident lusts and passions. The remnant of our fallen nature plagues our heart with ungodly appetites. And so our mind is willingly drawn into what the temptation offers. James says that temptation carries us away and entices us. And it's interesting, these two words actually have associations with fishing. Fishing. The one has a sense of a forceful dragging away and the other the sense of attraction exerted by offering bait. The inward desire functions like bait on a fishing hook. And once the bait is taken, the hook is set and then we are dragged away. Verse 15 then likens lust and desire to a mother giving birth. Lust and desire gives birth to sin. And then sin, sin gives birth to the next generation, death. But brothers and sisters, if we have Christ, we are not brute beasts whose path is determined only by base appetites. In Christ, the old Adamic nature must share residence with a higher nature. One born by the Spirit... And so there is a war within us. Galatians 5:17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. If you dwell on worldly passions, if you lose your identity with and hunger for Christ, then you are ill-equipped to embrace the remedies God provides. You are ill-equipped to avoid the hook. It starts in the consciousness of the mind. What do you dwell on? Romans 8, 6 says, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. In Philippians 4, a verse I'm sure many of you know well, we are told to have no anxiety about anything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we're to make our requests known to God. And then what happens? It says, then the peace of God, which passes understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What do you dwell on? The very next verse in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. He says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What does your mind dwell on? It starts in the consciousness of our mind. And Paul looks to the arena of God above and he says, think about these things. Meditate on these things. Contemplate your life and your identity in the context of glory. God has lavishly provided the means of grace, worship, preaching, sacraments, access to his word for private devotion, prayer. Feed your soul upon these things so that you may be equipped to avoid those entrapments that hinder a fuller enjoyment of your life in Christ. To this point in the letter, there are actually two threefold chains that have been presented. In the introduction in verses 3 through 12, it is trials that lead to endurance. That leads to the perfect, being complete, lacking in nothing, the crown of life. But now we see another threefold chain, lust, which leads to sin, which leads to death. Don't miss the contrast in the end of these two chains between the crown of life in verse 12 and death in verse 15. And the point is that our sin is our sin. God does not tempt. The trial becomes temptation not because of God, but because we become consumed with the world. We're unwilling to center our consciousness on what God has prepared for us and has already begun in us. Well, verse 16 takes us to the next section. And here we are transitioned into turning our attention from what God, God does not do to what he does do. The church is emphatically exhorted as beloved brothers to not be deceived far from being a tempter. God is the author of every good gift and note again, how our attention is so forcefully rooted upward in the above. These gifts are described as good and perfect. That is the same word that was used in verse four twice. They bear the marks of heaven. This heavenly origin is emphasized for the gifts are said to be coming down from above. And what's interesting is this verb form has a sense of ongoing action. Writes one commentator, James first asserts that all such gifts have their source above, the heavenly sphere as contrasted to the earthly. He then supplements this with the truth that these gifts are descending in a continual stream. These gracious gifts are viewed as continually coming down from the Father of lights, already blessing us. Each gift has originated and designed in heaven and then descending in an unending Succession. What a wonderful image. A continual stream of heavenly gifts falling down upon us like rain in a northwest storm. Verse 18 then speaks to the gifting more explicitly. In contrast to verse 15's expression of lust giving birth to sin, which gives birth to death. Here we are now presented with a second kind of birth. The word translated brought forth in verse 18 in some of your translations is the very same word used in verse 15 for birth. The perfect gift coming down from above is described in terms of the new birth in the gospel. In Luke eleven thirteen, 13, Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? New birth. The gift of Christ In the gift of the Spirit. What a gift we have in the outpouring of the Spirit. Is there A better gift coming down from above. God himself. The second half of the verse gives the purpose for this new birth. It is so that we could be counted the first fruits of his creatures. And the significance of first fruits in this case is that they belong to the Lord. First fruits were not for common use, but for God's own holy purpose. And so we are told elsewhere in scripture that we are a people for God's own possession, that we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Think about this. In the entirety of the universe, of all creatures, in all of creation, it is we, the church, the believers in the gospel, who are the portion set aside as consecrated to God in Christ? It is unfathomable exaltation wrapped in grace. And so now, now we are readied by James to hear him close out this chapter with a set of commands feeding from the good and perfect gift. God has bestowed upon the church. These are identity based appeals. God has consecrated you in new birth. You carry a new identity. You are no longer a citizen of this world, hopelessly enslaved by its passion. Your mind is to be set on things above. And, brothers and sisters, what the Spirit does in our lives through the new birth is profound. In an age more and more dominated by man's claim to be the sole authority over his life, the governing principle in the life of the believer is shocking. For the governing principle in the life of the believer comes from outside himself, from above. I am not my own, I was bought with a price. I am under the authority of God. The spirit of Christ takes up residence in us affecting a mystical union between us down here and the exalted Christ above. And it is so rich and it is so profound that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.16 that we have the mind of Christ that is absolutely extraordinary. And flowing out of this are exhortations to fully immerse our lives in the new identity born out of God's perfect gift. We are called to appropriate God's gift, to make good use of it. Some of you have had the experience or are having the experience of raising children. And when your eight or nine-year-old objects to the way you are parenting and perhaps chooses to express that in the form of a tantrum, a tantrum that perhaps might be better suited for a three-year-old. How do you approach that child? You're eight years old. You shouldn't act like a three-year-old. You need to act your age. And this is why James centers his reader early on in the realm of the perfect. It is so that he can exhort us from the realm of glory. He can exhort us as those who have been equipped by the spirit of the risen Christ to embrace a new identity centered in the realm of the perfect. And so James exhorts us to be quick to hear slow to speak, and slow to anger. These are common themes in the wisdom literature of Proverbs. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Proverbs 14.29 A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.1 when there are many words transgression is unavoidable but he who restrains his lips is wise Proverbs 10:19 Even a fool when he keeps silent is considered wise when he closes his lips he is counted prudent Proverbs 17:28 And he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles Proverbs twenty-one, twenty-three. These verses capture a similar idea to that found here in James. And note they are largely based on the disruptive nature of these sins upon the life of Israel. He who is quick-tempered exalts folly. A harsh word stirs up anger. Where there are, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. And in fact, the command to be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger is a command all would do well to consider and obey. Even the unbeliever will likely have greater enjoyment in his relationships if he can restrain his tongue, control his temper, listen first. These are principles even the world knows to be true. I heard these throughout my career Be good listeners, make sure you understand before you speak and when you speak, don't say things to needlessly provoke. But this command in verse 19 is not intended for the general consumption of mankind. It is attached to rewards that are uniquely designed for the believer. Nor is James merely repeating the wisdom of Proverbs. Note that verse 19 tells us it is written to my beloved brethren or my beloved brothers, this echoing the same title found in verse 16, which introduced that previous section on God's continual heavenly gifting. You see congregation, the command in verse 19, is itself a good gift passed down from heaven to our hearts. It is part of the gospel package and there is a loftiness to it, which exceeds that found in the book of Proverbs. James is teaching us that we need to think about how we speak and how we listen and how we control our anger because we are already bound by Christ to the perfect arena of heaven. And our life must reflect that perspective. James is saying to you all act your age. Act like those who dwell in the age of the Spirit. You see, the primary concern of this text is not the improvement of your earthly relationships but drawing your life into a fuller expression of the life of Christ which is being formed in you. The reason given for this command is not worldly bound. The problem with sinful anger in this instance is not first and foremost that it undermines healthy relationships. Look at verse 20. The problem with a quick tongue and uncontrolled anger, according to verse 20, is that it does not achieve the righteousness of God as if you were already there before him. That's the standard. That's your age. The problem for the believer with the uncontrolled tongue and with unrighteous anger is that it is not aligned with that which is perfect and complete. And it betrays our new identity found in our heavenly residence before the face of God. The same construct informs verses 21 through 25. Verse 21 describes the word of God as implanted in us. The prophet Jeremiah gazed into glory. It was a distant horizon from his perspective. And he saw a day when the new Israel would not carry the law on tablets of stone or parchments, but have it written upon their heart. Jeremiah 31, 33. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it. You see, the word becomes an inseparable part of us. It is implanted In us. In John chapter 4. Jesus meets a woman at a well. And there they have a a discussion on spiritual thirst. And it is there in that discussion that Jesus says. If you take the living water. It will become a well within you. Understand the importance of that image. It is a well within you. You are to constantly drink from it. And so we are told to receive or give her heed to the word implanted in us. We're not to be hearers only, but doers. The one who hears and does not do is likened to a man who looks in a mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. It's like a man who holds up a hand mirror and sees something that requires attention. Perhaps his hair is a mess or he has something on his face that needs to be cleaned off. But when he puts the mirror down, he forgets what he had seen and he walks away. The one who hears only is no more blessed after hearing than he was prior. Verse 22 says, such a man is deceived. He thinks because he's looked in the mirror, he thinks because he's read the Bible, he thinks because he's come to church, he's fine. The point was not to look in the mirror as an end in itself, but to incorporate what you have learned from it. The blessed state presented in verse 12 is further elaborated in verse 25 under this additional insight. The blessed man is a doer. He does not see his sin by means of a casual glance in the mirror only to to forget about it once he puts the mirror down. You see, his love for the reward, his desire for the crown of life is unsurpassed. And sin, all sin, poses a barrier between him and the goal of his Christian striving. The issue here is not that his sin disqualifies him. It obscures the reward. It is not that the tantrum means the little boy is no longer eight. If you want the privileges of being eight, then stop acting like you're three. Sin gets in the way. The fact that it is forgiven in Christ makes it no less intolerable. It is an unwelcome obstruction to a full enjoyment of the perfect realm of God. You see the eyes of the blessed are fixed on the horizon. This qualifies their attitude toward trials and their perspective on sin. Christ has graciously availed himself to us through the spirit. And nothing can be allowed to stand in the way of our full enjoyment of that. This is how we're to think about the Christian life. The man who walks away from the mirror is contrasted with the man who looks into the perfect law. And there's that word again. Perfect. Twice in verse 4. Again in verse 17. And now here. It is the law associated with glory. It is more extensive than the prohibitions of the Ten Commandments. The perfect law, the law of liberty, the law of the heavenly realm calls us to contemplate our life in the context of the righteousness of God as if we were ever standing before him in the city of God in the realm of the perfect. We are not called merely to avoid evil, but also to never neglect an opportunity to do right. James will go on in chapter four to say, he who knows what is right to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. The perfect law, the law of the above is all encompassing. It captures all of the gospel life. You see the man who looks at the perfect law is not trying to check a box of obedience as a means to an end, but to more fully embrace and enjoy a realm which no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man. One writer put it this way, men are free when they want to do what they ought to do. The commands of God placed before us the aroma of glory. They are part of the good gifts coming down from above. Obedience is part of the reward, harvest the reward. As the first fruits of all creatures, we are to be conformed to the perfect, to the complete where Christ dwells. That is where our identity is. That's where our mind should be dwelling. Are you among the scattered, heavenly exiles in this world? If so, then let your life reflect the realm you call home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have implanted the seed of glory in our hearts. And you've done that through the wonderful new birth in Christ. We pray that you would bless that seed, that it might take deep root in our hearts and grow and bear the fruit of eternal life. That you would grant us the grace to keep our eyes upon our Savior and out of that to labor well and bringing our life under subjection to that perfect law which reflects the blessing of true liberty and peace in the never-ending fellowship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.